Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today is a solo episode. I do not have my co-host Travis with me here today, and I'm going to dive into a specific topic. So I want to spend about 20 to 30 minutes with you guys today and uh, really just retouch on a topic that we've discussed multiple times, uh, both as a just random topic that I've covered, both in tandem with reverse dieting, macros, periodization, stuff like that, as well as in some of the research review podcasts that I've done with our chief science officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts. So we've covered this this topic many times, uh, but I want to kind of take a twist with this topic. And the topic is metabolic adaptation, which you probably know because you read the title before you clicked on it. Uh, metabolic adaptation something we've talked about many times, uh, and it's something that I think everybody should be aware of in regards to dieting because when we consider dieting, we have to consider the long-term negative and positive effects and really just what those effects cause with our physiology so that we can make the right adjustments to our diet, training, lifestyle in order to mitigate them and or prevent them or whatever we need to do, right? Uh, so we're going to dive into that uh, specifically and, and I want to teach you how to quote unquote avoid metabolic adaptation while you are dieting, which is somewhat impossible to be honest with you. So I guess you could say the title is kind of clickbait when it says how to avoid metabolic adaptation when dieting because the truth is, is you can't. If you successfully diet, it's going to happen. You can't actually not cause it. So first, I'm going to explain, cover and explain what metabolic adaptation is, just so we have some context. And then I'm actually going to talk about why you can't avoid it and why there's actually some research to show that uh, it's it's not necessarily just a bad thing all entirely. Like there are aspects of it that we obviously want to avoid or minimize, However, it's also a sign of success, right? And I talk about this even with hunger. There's a lot of times where people are like, man, like I'm so hungry. What am I doing wrong? It's like probably nothing. If you're in a calorie deficit, that means you are burning more calories than you were eating. And if you are burning more calories than you're eating, you're doing exactly what you want to do, right? Like you want to lose weight. Well, cool. You got to be in a calorie deficit. If you're going to be in a calorie deficit, you have to be ready for some hunger. That's that's kind of part of the process, right? So to me, if you want to lose a lot of body fat, you want to change your body, your physique, your weight, well, you're probably going to have to go through some metabolic adaptation. And that's just part of the price you pay. And it's not always a bad thing. Uh, so metabolic adaptation, what is it? It is quite literally the process of your metabolism adapting, your metabolic rate adapting. That's why it's called metabolic adaptation. Originally, it was coined as metabolic damage. And the reason they called that is because when this happens, your maintenance caloric intake drops, right? So what we saw, what researchers saw, what us as coaches saw, was that when somebody was dieting for a long period of time, they lost a lot of weight, and they successfully lost that weight, and we wanted to bring their calories back up to their maintenance, we realized that, oh shit, they're going to gain a lot of weight at that new maintenance, right? And it's, and it's because that's no longer their maintenance. And that's the whole part of you can't really avoid it. Right, So metabolic adaptation is the process of your metabolism adapting to a lower caloric intake and or lower body weight. As you go through a diet, 
certain physiological adaptations happen and they change the, the speed at which your metabolic rate or your metabolism functions at, which means that you have a slower metabolism by the time you lose the weight, which is also why that people who say they're really overweight because they have a slow metabolism isn't always completely the case. In fact, a lot of times it's not the case because the larger you are, the faster your metabolism has to be because you're taking in more calories and you have more use for those calories. You have more tissue. You have more weight. You have to use more energy in order to literally just do that day-to-day functions and movement, which means if you're burning more calories, you're, you're eating more calories. And if you're eating more calories and you're moving more, you're burning more calories through general movement because of your total body mass, actually you have a fast metabolism, right? This isn't always the case. There are people who have slower metabolisms, uh, people who have like thyroid dysfunction and stuff like that. But just immediately blaming it on the speed of your metabolism isn't always a scientifically accurate statement to make. So that's what metabolic adaptation is. Now, there was some recent research that showed essentially what they did is they revisited individuals who went through, I want to say it was called, the the study was called the Biggest Loser Study. Um, And I don't know if they were actually people from the Biggest Loser or they just called it that after the show. But essentially they went back and they looked at these people, I believe six years later. And essentially what they found was all the individuals after this long-term fat loss study who actually sustained the results the longest and they maintained more muscle mass, lower body fat levels, more active lifestyle, stuff like that, they all had a greater degree of metabolic adaptation. So if we look at the results of that study, then we can actually sit back and go, oh shit, metabolic adaptation is a sign of success. That is actually like a trophy. It, it is a badge of honor in a way. Like it's not like the coolest thing, but it's also like here, you actually were the most successful in this study. And the reason we know that is because you have a greater degree of metabolic adaptation. Now you might be wondering, why is that? Well, quite simply, It's because the individuals who had a higher degree of metabolic adaptations, they had a higher degree of weight loss, right? So again, if we know that your metabolic adaptation is primarily tied to how much you weigh and how much you eat, well, then we also know that if you lose a lot of weight, you're going to have the highest degree of metabolic adaptation. Right, So it is actually a sign of success because the people who lost the most weight had the most metabolic adaptation. They had to. Their bodies literally had to adapt because they were bringing their body weight up or I'm sorry, bringing their body weight down to an extremely low level compared to where it was before. So that the next thing that we have to kind of cover here as I have already kind of alluded to, but it's important for me to kind of solidify it more just, just for contextual reasons before we dive into again, like how can we avoid this thing, right? And that is what causes metabolic adaptation, right? So what are the, the two main factors here that cause metabolic adaptation? Number one is caloric restriction. When we go into a diet, we create a calorie deficit. When we create a calorie deficit, our calories are lower. And when our calories are lower, our body begins to adapt to it. This is the same exact thing, in essence, that happens with cardio. As we do cardio, we get adapted to the cardio in the reverse, right? We're, we're not creating a deficit through food. We're creating it through activity. So it's almost like energy expenditure adaptation. And as we go through energy expenditure adaptation, we burn less calories for that cardio. So a good example of this is you do 30 minutes of cardio on the treadmill. Week one, you burn, let's say, 300 calories per session, 500 calories per session. Who knows what it actually is? Uh, let's just go with 500 for easy math. Week two, maybe it's like 475, 450, 475 calories per session. 
These are not accurate numbers. I'm just throwing out blanket statements. By week six, you are burning 250. So 50% less calories as you were originally. Your weight loss has slowed significantly and you don't know why. You're still putting in all the work, but your body is more efficient at that cardio. Why is that? Well, when you increase efficiency of cardio, you are adapting to that cardio in essence. And when you are adapting and becoming more efficient, your body uses less energy in order to perform that bout of cardio. If you're losing, using less energy to perform that bout of cardio, you are quite literally using less calories to get through that cardio session. If you're using less calories, you're burning less calories. If you're burning less calories, you're losing less weight. Plain and simple, right? So we know this based on the research on metabolic adaptation. It's the same exact thing with a calorie deficit. Calorie restriction creates metabolic adaptation. The longer you stay in a deficit, the more time your metabolism has to adapt. Your body is constantly trying to find homeostasis. And if it's constantly trying to find homeostasis, it's going to adapt to the things you throw at it and try to become more efficient and just just basically create new maintenance wherever you're at because that's the easiest way to continue functioning day to day. Um, the other thing is drops in total body mass. And this is where the badge of honor or the trophy or the sign of success actually comes into play. Because if we, if we realize that drops in total body mass or total weight cause metabolic adaptation, well, then we can understand that really all this is saying is if you successfully lose weight, then your, your metabolism is going to slow down with that. And that's a sign of metabolic adaptation. That is metabolic adaptation happening. But it's happening because you were successful, right? And, it, and just think about it like this. If you weigh 200, 200 pounds and your goal weight is 170 pounds, when you weigh 170 pounds, not 200 pounds, do you think that your body needs the same amount of calories to walk, to eat, to digest, to move, to sleep, to grow, to do anything? To, to move through activities. No, it doesn't because not only are you getting stronger and more aerobically fit, so you're becoming more efficient in the gym, but you're also weighing less, so it takes less energy to move your body weight because you don't weigh as much, plain and simple, right? So we know this, and because of that, we have to expect some. Now, it's the price you pay, but it, it's a totally fine price. I mean, think about it, really. If you could be overweight at 200 pounds, and eat more food, but you could be very lean and confident at 170 pounds and eat less on a maintenance basis, I think we all know what we would choose. Yes, we would love to be able to have our cake and eat it too, eating more and being lean, but that's just not how the metabolism works. If you put on a significant amount of muscle, it will increase that, but you have to put on a lot of muscle in order to be able to still keep your maintenance while being 30 pounds lighter right? The only other thing you can do is a, a lot more activity, which you may be doing a lot more activity if you weren't doing anything before you started your fitness journey. However, most people would have to go to a uncomfortable level of activity, uh, a level of activity that would dip out of their lifestyle uh, routine, right? It would, it would cause them more stress than not because they would have to be altering their schedule to fit all the activity in. So those are the two things that cause metabolic adaptation for the most part, calorie restriction or drops in total body weight, um, both of which are expected and, and one of which is not a bad thing, right? I mean, calorie restriction is not a bad thing either. Uh, caloric restriction is actually heavily linked to longevity of life, whereas caloric surpluses are not. So it's actually healthy to be in a deficit at times. So there's nothing wrong with that. A calorie deficit creates, a, it actually causes autophagy. That's why people uh, associate intermittent fasting with autophagy and autophagy is uh, cell turnover. So if we want to improve the health of our cells and regenerate new cells, which is very good for longevity and health, uh, they say to intermittent fast, 
but we also know that really um, caloric restriction causes autophagy. So it's probably just calorie a calorie restriction that actually causes that autophagy during intermittent fasting because they don't have any studies that compare non-caloric, like uh, uh, intermittent fasting without a caloric deficit showing autophagy. They don't have anything to prove that yet. Is it true? Who knows? They don't have the study. But as of now, we have to assume that it's just calorie deficit that causes that autophagy. Point being is calorie restriction is not a bad thing and drops in total body mass are obviously not a bad thing that's what you're after if you're trying to lose weight. Now, we know what metabolic adaptation is. We know what are the main causes of it. We also know that it's not a bad thing. It should be expected. And to an extent, it's actually a sign that you did the work and you won, right? You succeeded at what you were after. The next thing we have to cover, cover are, what are what the main physiological components affected by it are. So the first thing is drops in hormones, right? So there's specific drops in hormones, uh, leptin, insulin, testosterone, and estradiol uh, to start. There may be some indirect drops in other hormones. For example, maybe uh, metabolic adaptation isn't as affected by it, but if we see a drop in testosterone, maybe that has a uh, dysregulation, an imbalance, or a drop in some other sex hormone that I'm not listing here. The point is the main ones that we're focusing on and looking at and that we see to the greatest extent inside of metabolic adaptation research are going to be leptin, insulin, testosterone, and estradiol. Um, if we have this drop in, uh, in, in the leptin hormone, we're going to see a uh, reduction in RMR. We're going to see increases in hunger. Um, if we drop insulin too much, we are going to have, it's going to potentially threaten muscle retention. So essentially insulin helps shuttle nutrients to the muscle cell and it allows us to utilize carbs better. It also helps us blunt cortisol down, which is the stress hormone. So if we don't have enough insulin or healthy levels of insulin or insulin drops too low, then we can actually have issues retaining muscle and storing carbohydrates where they need to go. Um, we're also going to see a, uh, a reduc uh, the like a reduction or reproductive issues in general. So the reproductive hormones are going to have issues mainly because of testosterone and estradiol are going to have issues. And we're also going to see some issues with bone health because of these things. Uh, now we're going to see increases in the hormones, ghrelin and cortisol, which aren't a good thing, right? So increases in ghrelin are also going to increase uh, hunger levels, which isn't going to be the best thing while you're trying to diet, obviously. And it works in tandem with leptin. Leptin and ghrelin are usually associated together because it's kind of the signals that tell your body to eat more food because you're in a deficit. So again, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But it is something that makes it more difficult, um, which is why maybe we don't want to remove or avoid metabolic adaptation because you can't to basically, you really just can't. <laughs> I mean, plain and simple. But we might want to try to manage it better, I think is a better word. I think avoiding it is a better title for a podcast, but I think managing it is a better way to describe it in, the, in this podcast because if we can manage it better, then maybe we can get through those hunger pains a little bit easier to adhere to the diet longer and be more successful. Um, and then cortisol is obviously going to increase stress levels. It's going to have some water retention effects, and there's going to be some potential issues on lean mass retention, um, mainly because cortisol is a catabolic hormone, whereas something like insulin or growth hormone, for example, is an anabolic hormone. So it helps us build muscle, whereas cortisol would actually break down amino acids and muscle tissue in order to provide energy. Now, cortisol is not always a bad thing because if you have enough calories coming in, cortisol being up can actually boost performance because it's in a way it can act as a central nervous system stimulant. If you really think about it, cortisol goes up, adrenaline goes up, um, norepinephrine goes up. We we're going to be able to, it's fight or flight, right? So the nervous system uh, going into uh, fight or flight mode, essentially, right? Sympathetic nervous system tones. That's like they always say the, the saber-toothed tiger is chasing you, right? But that's the get up and go 
stimulation, right? Your nervous system gets amped up. This is actually why we tend to do explosive movements before compound lifts. We amplify our nervous system and then we go into the compound lifts because we can lift heavier, recruit more motor units. We can be more explosive, be stronger, so on and so forth. So cortisol going up during training is not always a bad thing. However, if it's, if it's, chronically elevated, if it's consistently high, that's where we start having these catabolic effects and then we can have some issues with lean mass retention. But also knowing that insulin drops while we are in a calorie deficit and metabolic adaptation is occurring, that might lead to uh, issues with muscle retention as well for two reasons. One, because that's how we shuttle nutrients to the muscle. But two, that's also how we blunt cortisol. When we eat carbs and insulin goes up, we lower the cortisol hormone, and I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but insulin and cortisol have an inverse relationship. So when insulin goes up, cortisol goes down. When cortisol goes down, then we are staying in a more anabolic zone. We are being better recovered, fed, so on and so forth. So um, there's a lot going on here. But in general, those are the main physiological components affected by metabolic adaptation. Those are the, the hormones that are shifted because of metabolic adaptation and during metabolic adaptation. Uh, now, the next question is how far into a diet does it actually start to occur? From what we know in the research, and this is something I, I'm, I'm stealing from Brandon Roberts, our chief science officer, because I asked him this question directly to get an answer, is what he's found in the research is that after about three weeks, metabolic adaptation starts to occur. So for the first three weeks of a diet, um, we don't see as many drops in leptin, insulin, testosterone, and estradiol, and we don't see as many increases in ghrelin and cortisol. We just see calorie deficit doing its thing, you're losing weight, things are fine. After about three weeks, these physiological changes from metabolic adaptation start to occur and they have a direct effect on your metabolism. And that's when you see the slowdown of your metabolism and your maintenance caloric intake begins to shift due to the calorie deficit you are in and potentially the weight that you have lost within three weeks, in the last three weeks. Now, three weeks is, is a very rough estimate. For some people, it could be four, could be six, could be two, could be, we don't really don't know, right? It, it, I think it ultimately depends on not only the level of stress placed on the individual through training, diet, and lifestyle, but also the stress capacity of the individual. Everybody's body is built different and everybody's nervous system and hormonal system and everything is built different in the sense that they can handle different amounts of stress. So if somebody can handle a little bit more stress and their body's a little more resilient, then we might be able to get away with a little bit more dieting before metabolic adaptation occurs. I'd also say that it depends on how long it's been since you dieted or if you've ever dieted before. Somebody who has never dieted before might not experience a lot of these things for a while. They might get away with dieting for a good amount of time before any of these actually kick in. Whereas somebody who has dieted multiple times in their life, they might see these and feel these, uh, these physiological changes much faster and they might kick in sooner. So it really, really depends on so many factors, but we see it start to occur at about three weeks. Hey guys, I want to take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, The Tailored Trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with The Tailored Trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us, and they needed training help as well. And I was tired of hearing people tell me, I don't look like I lift. I'm in the gym hours every week. I'm training hard. I'm pushing myself. I'm sweating my ass off, but I don't look like I work out. What is the deal? And the deal is simple. There isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they are putting in the gym. They don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after, which is why I want 
wanted to create an app that did that for you. Not only does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience, because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer, because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level but it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything and it is programmed properly to get you to progress, which is why I always tell people, stop aimlessly working out using influencers, Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you. And you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day. And you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. One thing to, to consider here too is that because we know it's not necessarily a bad thing, um, and we know that these changes happen within the first three weeks potentially, I would say this is where we could consider periodization on a, a larger level. We can look at how, how many weeks or months out of the year we should not be in a deficit um, to avoid metabolic adaptation from occurring quicker and getting away with a little more time before these things start to kick up. We can also consider how long we're going to be dieting before taking a diet break, which we're going to get to in a sec, so that we can try to mitigate those adaptations. Um, and it can also give us the length of the diet break itself, right? This is where I tell people, you know, the best route for some is to take one diet break every three weeks because as metabolic adaptation starts to ramp up, we take one to two weeks off, right? This is going to extend the diet phase quite a bit because you're taking one to two weeks out of the deficit every three to four weeks you're in the deficit. So as you can imagine, that's going to double or triple the length of time. So if you're going to diet for 12 weeks, now you just made your diet 24 weeks, if not 36 weeks, which is a long period of time. However, if you don't plan on doing a bulk afterwards, if you want to maintain, if you want to just continue performing, but you want to maintain a lean physique and you're willing to commit a lot of time, that might be the best move for you, assuming you want to get leaner and maintain that for the rest of your life. Whereas some people, it might be the same exact time frame, but we might go due to really psychological and motivational uh, issues or advantages here. We might go eight to 12 weeks of dieting followed by four to eight weeks of diet break. So big chunks of dieting and, and maintenance phases throughout the year and, and accomplish your goal in a year's time. But again, if you take a year to get there and you can look back five years later and be like, damn, I'm still really lean, feeling great, performing well, and everything's in check you're going to be happy you spent that year doing it, right? So you got to understand that in the time you invest into it is directly going to lead and be a, a direct example of or mirror image of how long you're going to be able to maintain that afterwards. Not that taking a year to get there means you can only maintain for a year, but the longer you take to diet and do things properly, the more likely you are to sustain that result for a long period of time afterwards. So now we're kind of coming to the conclusion of the podcast, and really we're going to wrap up with some bullet points on um, how to manage, right, or according to the title, how to avoid metabolic adaptation during a diet. Uh, but I would say, how can we manage metabolic adaptation better during a diet? And the first thing you can do is balance the three diet dials. And I've talked about this many times. I've created infographics, so on and so forth. And those three dials are intensity, frequency, and duration. So essentially, we have these three dials that we can turn on. We can diet for a shorter period of time 
and not do it as often, but we can crank the intensity up way high. So maybe we only diet once or twice throughout the whole year, but it's only like a short eight-week diet and we get after it. We go in a big deficit, we go aggressive, we get after it, do a lot of cardio, we just, it's big bang for your buck, get it done, get out. This has positive benefits you are going to guarantee some weight loss. However, you also have to really be careful with muscle retention, which means that you can't do as much volume. Um, Adherence is going to be harder because you're in a very big deficit. And we know that the psychological burden is higher. Therefore, after the diet, you're more likely to binge, right? And overeat and gain that weight back and rebound. We could do less intense, shorter duration, but high-frequent diets. This is where we would go 8 to 12 weeks at a pretty decent diet, and we do that a few times throughout the year with maintenance phases in between because we want to take all year to get to our goal weight, right? That's a high-frequency, low-intensity, low-duration. I would say moderate-intensity, low-duration. We could go long-duration, so we could take 24 to 36 weeks, like I said, with a lower frequency. We're only going to do this once, but we're going to have a moderate to low intensity because we're getting after it for a little bit, but then we're taking a diet break. And if we balance those two, the intensity is not too high either. It's just like volume, frequency, and intensity in training. We can't have a high volume program that is maxing out intensity and doing a high frequency. Your joints will get crushed. Your nervous system will burn out. You just can't do it. So we have to dial these dials in properly, right? And this means we're avoiding extremely long durations, uh, unless we're taking diet breaks or we're not doing it aggressively. Um, we got to be kind of aggressive at times, but we can't be too aggressive all the time. It means that slow and steady is usually great, but you don't want to go too slow for too long because then you're in a deficit for a really long time and you might adapt too quickly and not actually lose much weight at all because you're in such a small deficit. Um, and then we know that we have to have a consistency to avoid dieting again, right? So this is why it's like, what's the best route to diet? Well, fuck. It depends. You know, you have to play, and this is what we do as coaches. We play with these dials to create the perfect situation for the per, the individual. It's going to be different every person, depending on your hormones, depending on your lifestyle, depending on your goals, depending on your timeline, depending on your budget, depending on your training, all those kind of things, right? Depending on the next goal you might have after you accomplish this goal. But the point is, is we have to balance these three dials. They can all be moderate, so they can all be in the middle, or you can have one really high and the other's low. You can have two semi-high, one really low. Like, it really just depends right um now the the next aspect of of managing metabolic adaptation during a diet break or sorry during a diet phase is diet breaks so once upon a time it was cheat meals then it went to cheat days and then it was if if anybody remembers the good old days back in the bodybuilding days was skip days and uh skip was a, a bodybuilder really really popular bodybuilder, especially on the forums back in the day before Instagram and all that. And he would have skip days and it's like basically you just eat like shit all day and it's a super high calorie day. Really fun, but really destructive to your physique and your results and your, your the psychology of dieting. Uh, but diet breaks are mainly psychological at this point. We've, there's been tons of research on one-day refeeds, two-day refeeds, three-day diet breaks, full-week diet breaks. And what they find is that it's mainly psychological. You're mainly getting a psychological relief from it, which I would venture out to say is going to have an effect on some of those stress hormones that we talked about. It's also going to have effect on leptin and ghrelin because you're eating more calories for an extended period of time. So you're not going to be as hungry. However, when you return back to the deficit, you are going to see increases in those those hunger hormones again and your hunger is going to creep up. It might not happen right away, right? So if you do a full week diet break, the few days after the diet break, you might not be super hungry, but I promise you after the three week diet or diet phase that you go into before your next diet break, you're probably going to be just as hungry as you were before the diet break. And that's because when you're in a deficit and metabolic adaptation is running its course, again, we're going to see an increase in those hunger hormones and a, well, an increase in leptin, a decrease in ghrelin, but it's going to cause this hunger to be higher 
Um, so we also know that, uh, there is some glycogen replenishment. So they did see some improvements in, uh, in the ice cap trial, which is, uh, um, Jackson Piazza's diabreak study. They did see improvements in muscle glycogen and performance when it came to muscular endurance, which kind of means like high rep sets in, in, uh, I would say fatigue exhaustion ratio. So how many reps you can do until you're fatigued or exhausted, the muscle is too worn out. Um, so there may be some benefits there. However, we also know once again, you're going to deplete that glycogen again once you go into deficit. So I would say they are worth that because if you take a diet break and for that whole week, you're able to push volume. And then a few days after that, you're able to push volume. I would venture out to say you're probably going to maintain more muscle by the end of your diet and or maybe even build a little muscle depending on who you are if you utilize diet breaks during a diet phase. Um, the next thing is going to be uh, hormonal, I call it a hormonal insurance and policy and also stress management. And I would say stress management goes with all those. But if we're doing like two plus days, we're going to see some glycogen replenishment. We're going to have some psychological benefits from just stepping away from the diet, right? We're not stressed about food anymore because we stepped out of the diet for a couple of days or more. And stress management due to a reduction in cortisol because as soon as you start eating more calories, especially carbs, which most refeeds in diet breaks should be structured as a increase in carbs to bring you to your maintenance, calories via carbs. Um, we are going to see a drop in cortisol because again, Carbs increase insulin. Insulin going back up after it's been low from the diet and metabolic adaptation is going to mean cortisol is going to be blunted and that's going to lead to stress reductions, which is going to help your mindset quite a bit, I believe. And it might help with muscle retention. Now, five plus days, so anything over five days would be, I call a potential hormonal insurance policy. And what I mean by that is, is and this is where it's kind of a double-edged sword, a catch-22. If we look at a 12-week diet and one without any diet breaks, we are going to see X amount of hormonal adaptations due to metabolic adaptation, right? Hormonal adaptations fall into this umbrella of metabolic adaptation, as I was describing before, these physiological changes. Now, if we have a hormonal quote-unquote insurance policy, right, because we have these diet breaks throughout the period of time that we're dieting, then what we may see is a less degree of these hormonal adaptations occurring. So maybe we don't get as big of a hit to these sex hormones and the stress hormones and the, the hormones, the hunger hormones and all these hormones that get affected by the diet, right? However, if we use diet breaks during a 12-week period, we can't guarantee the same amount of weight loss in that 12 weeks because, for example, if you take even just two full diet break weeks during a 12-week period, but let's say it's, let's say three, so every fourth week is a diet break. Well, in a 12-week period, you are in a, you are in a deficit for nine weeks versus 12 weeks. Nine weeks being that you have three weeks of diet break. Well, that's nine weeks in deficit versus 12 weeks in deficit. So we can't guarantee that you're going to lose as much weight because you might actually not lose as much since you weren't in a deficit for as long. Technically, you were in deficit three weeks less than the group that didn't take diet breaks. Therefore, you might have to diet an extra three weeks. And we can't guarantee that you had that hormonal coverage if you dieted for a longer duration of time to make up for that lost time being at diet breaks. So... Do we know this for sure? No, because there's not any perfect studies to replicate that. I think it totally depends on the individual. I think that there's plenty of people who don't use diet breaks and they don't lose as much weight in the 12-week period. And people who do use diet breaks do lose as much, if not more. And they, they say it's because these diet breaks help their hormones or help boost their metabolism. 
I would probably say what it's really doing is either A, increasing your energy expenditure because when you increase your calories, you're moving more. So you might burn just as many calories on those diet break days without realizing it because you're walking more, standing more, talking more. Maybe you train a little bit harder, you sleep a little bit better, and those things end up burning more calories on those diet break weeks, and it kind of balances itself out. Or the individuals who don't take the diet break have more psychological stress during the diet, and they end up adhering less. So even though they dieted for 12 weeks, they had more quote-unquote off days or uh, binges or splurging or going over their calorie budget scattered throughout that 12-week period than the other group because they were more stressed from the diet from not taking diet breaks. That's what I would venture out to say, which ultimately, if you're listening to this, it doesn't really matter either way because it's kind of one of those things where like if the direct cause, if, if, if there's two completely different opinions on what the direct effect these diet breaks have is, but they both lead to the same thing, which is a better result. At some point you got to go, who cares what is actually happening here? These both are options and opinions that are backed by some research and they lead to a positive result, right? That's really what matters, right? Okay. So we have uh, diet breaks in there. And this is, again, mainly psychological to keep adherence, potentially to help with muscle retention because glycogen replenishment and performance and stress management, which lowers cortisol and potentially drops how much catabolic uh, positions you are in during the diet. And then maybe an insurance policy for hormones. Because again, if you're on a 12-week diet and you don't diet longer than that because of the diet breaks, then technically you had some pauses throughout that 12 weeks that maybe just put a pause on metabolic adaptation. That's why I say it's an insurance policy. So you're not reversing any metabolic adaptations. And that's what we thought at first. You take these diet breaks and boom, you reverse all these metabolic adaptations that are occurring. And it's more like you're just pushing the pause on them. You might reverse them for those seven days, but then they get right back into it when you go into the deficit. So there's less reversal and more of just like a pausing nature, which is a positive thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a really good thing. It's just that it's different than what we once thought it was. Okay, strength training is next. Uh, That is one of the ways to avoid, or sorry, manage uh, metabolic adaptation. And really what you want is 50% or more of, of growth volume to maintain muscle and just doing enough strength training to stimulate muscle protein synthesis on a regular basis. The more often we stimulate muscle protein synthesis through resistance training and or protein consumption, because it does spike every time we train and it spikes every time we eat protein. The more we do that, uh, the more likely we are to maintain and or build more muscle. And we know that you don't need much volume to maintain the muscle you have uh, studies show less than 50%, but they were in very, uh, I don't know if they were untrained per se, but they're not athletes in my opinion. So I probably would take that with a grain of salt. 50% is not hard to do, but if you're doing at least half of the amount of volume. So if you do 20 sets per week of glutes or hamstrings or quads, whatever, then you just got to hit 10 sets per week of those muscle groups in order to maintain your muscle. And if you maintain your muscle, um, or really, if you look at it like a scale, the more muscle you maintain, the more you are managing metabolic adaptation. That's the best way to look at it. And that, the next thing with this all training and everything and in, in, uh, helping to manage metabolic adaptation is managing intensity, doing more less cardio and neat instead of high intensity interval training, managing your intensity in the gym. So not always going for PRs, keeping your RPE in check, not doing too much volume, not going to failure too often, not um, lifting too heavy, not exerting yourself too much, simply because the more you do that and 
the more you do that while in a position that it, you are not ready to recover from it because you're in a deficit, literally, um, and when you're in a deficit, metabolic adaptation is happening. We already know that for men, testosterone is lower. For women, thyroid, well, for everybody, thyroid lowers. I'm, I'm surprised I didn't mention that in the, the hormonal thing. No, I didn't. So uh, thyroid is one of the hormones that directly is impacted by a calorie deficit, and that is a huge effect on your metabolism. But the point is, is when these hormones are low and then your stress hormones are high, which are catabolic, and they're not going to help you recover, and you're in a deficit, so you have less energy coming in to actually like sufficiently replenish those tissues that you're breaking down during the session, it's probably not the best idea to add the stress of hard, hard training. So typically in a diet, we don't want to do too much hit. We want to do more less and neat cardio. And we don't want to do too high intensity or too high volume. We want to manage that intensity and volume in the gym to allow us to still recover while in a diet or in a deficit. Uh, you're going to want a high protein intake again. Uh, and this is going to help uh, uh, with metabolic adaptation for a few reasons. Number one, it's going to allow your, your, your calories to be a little bit higher um, without having to, uh, like, I don't want to say that you can't, because you, you, it's, phys it's, it's not scientifically accurate for me to say it's impossible to store protein as body fat. It's just that there's no research to show it ever happening. There's mechanisms that people can create theories off of that make a lot of sense as to why protein may be able to store as pro, uh, fat because your body will find a way to store everything. However, they cannot find it in any study. So for the most part, it's safe to have a higher protein intake. And I would venture out to say, especially in my experience, that you can typically diet on more calories if you go above and beyond with protein. So instead of me going in a 1500 calorie deficit and losing one pound a week, I might be able to go to a 1600 calorie def, uh, diet, losing one pound a week, because I added those 100 calories just via protein, which is 25 grams of protein. That's a whole shake. That might be the difference between you being so hungry you can't adhere and being satisfied enough to adhere to the diet, right? But high protein intake doesn't just help hunger, which is going to help some of those hunger hormones that are out of whack during metabolic adaptation, but also it's going to help muscle protein synthesis and muscle retention uh, to a greater degree. And there's some research to show going above a gram per pound, going closer to 1.25, 1.5 grams per pound is actually going to be more helpful for retaining muscle tissue during a, uh, an aggressive deficit than having a lower protein intake. Um, next on how to manage metabolic adaptation, we have two more things, and this one is managing all other health markers. So really, this is pretty simple, right? Making sure you're staying hydrated, making sure that you're sleeping enough, making sure that you're getting recovery, you're managing stress, making sure you're getting your micronutrients in, you're taking your multivitamin, your greens drink, stuff like that. Just really covering all your bases from a health perspective because obviously, as metabolic adaptation happens, it's attacking some of the aspects of your health. So if that's the case, then we wanna make sure that we're, we're covering our bases with all the other health markers that we can in order to avoid health getting low and again, managing metabolic adaptation. And last but not least is setting a step count target to meet. And your goal should be at least maintaining your maintenance step count during the diet, right? Because one of the biggest contributors to metabolic adaptation is a lower meat. So we know that BMR lowers, RMR lowers. We know that the thermic effect of food lowers because we're taking in less calories. We know BMR and RMR lower because your body mass is lower. Um, typically eat, so exercise, activity, thermogenesis uh, lowers as well because you have less calories coming in, which means that you can really just produce less force, muscle contractions, energy in the gym. So you're not burning as many calories in the gym because you don't have as much energy to do so. But also you're neat. So your step goes down a lot. And that's actually one of the biggest things. So one of the things I recommend to a lot of clients that helps them quite tremendously 
is we have a step count before we get into the deficit. So if somebody is stepping 10,000 steps a day, our goal going into the deficit is to maintain that. Because if we can maintain that, then we can stay closer to burning just as many calories as we were while our calories were high, and that caloric deficit we create via food becomes much more productive. Now, we have to also remember that you're probably still going to have to increase that at a certain point because... RMR lowers, BMR lowers, uh, the thermic effect of food lowers, your uh, your EAT, so your exercise thermogenesis lowers, and you're probably going to burn less calories through act, uh, aspects of NEAT that you don't even realize, right? You're not going to be able to track how many times you blink, how much you talk, how many hours you stand. I mean, I guess on that one you can with trackers, but all these little things that lead to more calories spent every day that you can't track, those those do affect your overall need and how many calories you burn on a day-to-day basis. So if we know those are going to lower and we can't track them, then we might have to go, okay, we're stepping 10,000 steps a day. Let's go into a deficit. That's step one. Let's maintain that 10,000 steps. When we hit a plateau, maybe we bump that up to 12,000 steps and go into a slightly lower deficit, and we're going to see a good investment uh, or a good ROI, return on, of our investment in investment being the steps we put in. Uh, but nonetheless, your knee is something you want to pay attention to because it's one of the biggest affected things of metabolic adaptation. So guys, that, that we're going to wrap it up there. Um, I want to just say real quick, once again, metabolic adaptation is not something to be scared of. It's a natural uh, physiological process that happens while we go into a calorie deficit and or lose weight. And it can actually be seen as a, uh, a sign of success because in studies, when people lose a lot of weight, they also have a greater amount of metabolic adaptation occurring, which tells us that it is directly related to the success of your weight loss phase. So don't be afraid of it. Just learn strategies that I went over to manage it so you can better control it. You cannot be as affected by it physiologically and psychologically. Even though some degree will happen, you can manage it better and have less of it happen. And you'll be able to maintain more muscle during your diet if you do these things while trying to manage the metabolic adaptation that's occurring. And last but not least, if this confuses you, if you feel like you're in this position, if you feel like you you did this wrong and you've been in a bad position, we help thousands of people year-round lose weight, feel better, perform better, reverse diet properly, all those kind of things. We have tons of content on metabolic adaptation and reverse dieting on the website that you can find at tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash uh, blog or slash guides because we have free guides on this stuff too. And of course, you can also go to uh, the link in the description or tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching and you can apply for coaching. When you apply for coaching, which is completely risk-free and financially free, you can jump on a call with us. We can chat to you about this whole entire process, how we would fit it into your lifestyle and apply it to you specifically. And then you can get started with your coach to get in the right direction. And while you're actually losing the weight or reverse dieting, whichever one suits you at the moment, you can actually learn what you're doing because we educate our clients so that they can carry on and do this on their own without us for the rest of their life. All right, guys, that's all I got for you today. I appreciate you listening. If you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and review on Spotify and or iTunes, please. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you learned a thing or two, do me a favor, share it, send it to a friend, post it on your story on Instagram, share it on Facebook, do whatever you got to do to get more people listening to this because we want to spread the wealth of knowledge and get more people dieting and training the right way. Thank you guys once again, and I will talk to you soon.